0: That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality
1: so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle, find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
0: Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto and beyond. This episode is sponsored by ErisX.com, the Stellar Development Foundation, and Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund. The Breakdown is produced and distributed by
1: Coindesk. Here's your host, NLW. Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Thursday, May 21st, and over the last few weeks, we have spent a lot of time looking at the U.S. dollar and what it means for the dollar to be so strong relative to other currencies. Does this serve the U.S.? Does this serve the rest of the world? Is there a better system? This is one of the most important questions, not just for the crypto and Bitcoin world, but for economies writ large. And I don't want to lose sight of the relevance or what's happening to other currencies as we talk about the dollar. And so with that in mind, I'm really excited to share an interview with Tuomas Malinen. Thomas is uh, the chief economist and CEO of GNS Economics, which is a Helsinki-based macroeconomic consultancy. He also is an adjunct professor of economics at the University of Helsinki. I came across Thomas earlier this year when he wrote a really brilliant thread called Why the breakup of the Eurozone is a near certainty. It's a really really interesting thread and my conversation with Thomas did not disappoint. I think he is very clearly not an ideologue, but is someone who is trying to carve out an interesting middle space when it comes to economic thought and political thought as it relates to Europe. We talk a lot about the background of Europe and the euro itself coming into the crisis and how tensions around the disbursement of aid in the context of the crisis have actually inflamed larger political questions. That's the main part of the interview, but we also get into China and why we might be at the end of the Chinese economic miracle, and more broadly, just look at what the state of the world economy is and why it is so fragile. So there's a ton here to unpack. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. One note, as always, long interviews like this we edit only very, very lightly, so let's dive in. All right, I am here with Thomas Malinen. Thomas, thanks so much for joining.
2: I'm I'm glad to be here. Thank you for uh, having me here
1: yes yeah, so I've been I've been following you for uh, a little while now it's far far too little time I think uh, I, I I discovered you actually it was interesting so I was uh, I caught notice of a thread you posted about um, the euro and why the, uh, the the breakup of the eurozone might be coming and and what challenges it faces and I saved it I save everything that I save to a, a common kind of file storage area I use a, an app called pocket and I was going back and reflecting on this because I immediately emailed you and asked you to to join the podcast after i saw that and had read some more of your work uh, but then i was going back and i realized that i had also saved a thread of yours on china uh, from january as well so I, I had i had without knowing it been uh, been following you for even longer than i thought but uh, i'm so excited to have you here today uh to talk about you know as i was mentioning to you the the goal of the breakdown is to help people understand uh really how economic systems and power shift systems around the world are changing and and being a U.S. podcast, uh, we're naturally kind of a little bit U.S.-centric. But the reality is, is that as much as we are trying to peel this back, and and there may be uh, there may be kind of forces peeling back globalization. We live in a in a highly interconnected, interdependent world, and so I want to make sure we have perspectives that can speak to uh, to different contexts. So um, I, there's a ton that you can speak to. I know your research is not uh, refined or defined by any one kind of region specifically, but I'd like to maybe start with this idea of uh, of Europe and talk about the euro in, in the context of this COVID crisis and, and maybe how it's exacerbating forces that were there before. But maybe by way of setup, uh, let's talk about what, what was the state of Europe from an economic perspective or, you know, if we want to get even more narrow, uh, a banking perspective coming into the crisis.
2: Well, it was weak, to say the least. I, the, the, the latest figures just before the, the corona crisis hit basically showed that we were already in recession. And now this is a, this, is, this, this massive economic hit will push us into depression. But the thing is that they uh, and this is something we have been kind of talking to our, our uh, U.S. customers uh, and also which have been constantly raising in, in Twitter that the, that the European banking sector is actually the biggest threat to the world economy. This time around, so it's it the, the shock, the actual shock, is probably not going to come from from U.S. but from Europe. And the thing is that what what uh, what cr- um, creates the fragility of the European banking sector, it basically starts in in two thousand eight, when we had the global finance the crisis. And and while in the U.S. they let a huge number of banks fail, uh, in Europe they did no such thing. So they bailed out the banks with li- very limited funds, uh, and they also allowed the, the banks to keep some of this toxic stuff, you know, the CDOs and stuff like that, in their balance sheets and, and pretend that they had some value. And this kind of made, made the, 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 it kind of stompified the European banking sector from the beginning, from the 2008 crisis. And then we had the, the, the 2010, 2012 crisis, which is usually referred as the European debt crisis, although it was the European banking crisis. Uh, and they, the, the banks that were in trouble were, were basically German and French banks who had lent heavily, heavily to Greece. And if Greece would default, the banks would face serious losses. So our leaders kind of came up with this idea of recapitalizing the banks through Greece. And it's of course doesn't work very well like that. So that's the starting point of, of uh, why the European banking sector is so weak. And after that, all the policies the E C B implemented, basically uh, the alt monetary transactions, Uh, issued in 2012, the negative interest rates issued in 2014, and the quantitative easing issued in 2015, all made the the European banking sector uh, more weak. And uh, the thing why the European banking crisis is is so dangerous for the rest of the world is that we have the biggest concentration of the global systematically important banks and, our, uh, and, the, and the assets of our banking sector in the Eurozone are some 300% of GDP, while the same is about 80-90% of the GDP in the, in the US. So that's the background.
1: How? What is the? So, okay, so this is kind of the the banking side, but obviously, a lot of these issues are inextricable from political challenges. And part of what makes Europe such a interesting uh, case study for the world is that you have uh, you have you have a political experiment laid on top of an economic experiment. So, what was the kind of the legacy of uh, of kind of the the polit- political side of all of these different issues? Again, coming into this crisis.
2: Well, yeah, the, the thing is that we know from uh, from currency unions that there is the, the glue kind of that holds them together is the political will. And um, when the eurozone or the, the laws concerned or the treaties concerning the eurozone were created, th- there were several uh, articles put in place that ensured that we wouldn't have fiscal responsibility from each, each other. This is just because, you know, we... We Finns, for example, have very little similarities with the Greeks. We don't, you know, that we are, we are not in the same country. We have different cultural heritage and stuff like that. So we don't. The, the, the people of the North, for example, for example, consider that it's not their responsibility to support the people of the of the South, at least through governmental uh, cooperation. And what the 2010-2012 crisis did is that it kind of enforced us uh, or the uh, politicians of the northern of of all europe basically enforced the the people of the northern con member countries to support the 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 southern countries and it it started to show as a uh, as a huge rise in the in the support for populistic parties like the True Finns in, in Finland and the Alternative for Deutschland in Germany. Just, be, just because the, 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 our leaders were kind of um, twisting the rules we agreed when the Europe was set up. And after the 2010-2012 crisis, there was the refu- ref, uh, refugee crisis in 2015, which caused kind of the same thing. So the EU kind of forced many uh, of... Uh, northern nations to take a lot of refugees, which they didn't want to take, or the people didn't want to take. And this also raised the, the, uh, the popularity of these populistic parties. And these two events have kind of eaten away the political support among the people to kind of sup- keep supporting the the, uh, the construct of the euro and, and the weaker member nations. So it's a, it's been a it's been a kind of tragic route for the last 10 years which has eaten away the, the political cohesion and will. And like I mentioned, the, the, the thing is that it, it makes is it makes the current situation inflammable because uh, uh uh the flammable, I mean, because the uh the now we would need the political support and will more than ever, and it's it's the weakest we ever had. So that makes a case that it's very very likely that the eurozone will not uh, uh, survive through this crisis.
1: So okay so we have a structurally an, an increasingly weak European banking sector we have declining uh political will and so your your thesis or or, or the next part so your thesis is that it, you the chances of the eurozone not surviving this crisis are higher than ever and then you said that the three questions the eurozone now faces are one will the European Central Bank be able to provide support for sovereign bond markets through QE Two, will national authorities accept the terms associated with possible bailout loans? And three, will national political leaders continue to support the euro? And just for context, for people who are listening, this was written on May 12th. So obviously, we've lived lifetimes in the eight days or whatever it is since then. But could you explain just a little bit about, about those three three points maybe as a way to, to get into the rest of this conversation?
2: Yeah. Well, the first one is that the ECB uh, has been strongly supporting the, the, the sovereign bond market of the of the eurozone member nations and thus supporting the, the the fiscal capacity of of especially the weaker nations. The second is that the um, the austerity programs that were unleashed on, on the uh, weaker member nations or the crisis na- nations in 2010-2012 were highly unpopular in those uh, in those countries, which is no surprise, of course. And the third is what i kind of referred to was that will there be enough political support for in the northern member countries to keep kind of uh pushing or giving money to the 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 southern or the or the weaker member countries and as it currently stands all these three are failing
1: so, th- can you explain for people who haven't been following along how has the uh, how has the ECB uh, attempted to kind of engage in this moment as compared to you know the U.S. Federal Reserve or, or other central banks around the world in the context of the crisis?
2: Well, the uh, the, the, the uh, original response of the ECB was very similar than in the U.S. It, they thought it the um, what was it called? It was the. Uh, Pandemic Emergency Purchase Program, uh, which they just bought a huge uh, amount of sovereign debt from from the Eurozone. And they also bought some uh, uh, corporate debt. So, but the, the thing is that in the original QE, it was... The decision of the ECB and the European Court of Justice that the purchase program needed to follow the capital key of the ECB, which means that they need to buy the sovereign bonds in a, uh, according to the capital the countries have uh, issued to the ECB. So there are certain, like, the, this trend, uh, I think it's over 20%, but then they, they can buy uh, German bonds and just 2% of Finnish bonds, for example. But in the um, pandemic emergency program, they scrapped this, and and that was kind of the beginning. But then there was the decision of the Germany's constitutional court, which essentially found that the uh, uh, the ECB may have overstepped its monetary mandate in the uh, in the in the original QE program, and they gave us gave actually us, not us, the ECB a three-month deadline to show that they have not disproportionately affected the the fiscal capacity of of, uh, the member countries of the Eurozone. And that changed the whole ballgame because that's exactly what the ECB has achieved with the QE programs. So now the... the, The thing is that if the ECB is going to, you know, persuade the the Constitutional Court of Germany that this has not happened, the, uh, the Constitutional Court will order the Bundesbank to withdraw from the program, which means that the Bundesbank will exit the ECB or that the ECB will stop the program. So the Germany's Constitutional Court has kind of issued a backstop for all these bailout operations of the ECB, so it has completely changed the ball game. While there is like with the Fed, there seems to be no backstop. The Fed is buying anything it wants, basically. So this has changed a lot within just just you know two to three weeks. The whole the whole uh, the whole ball game of monetary policy has changed in the Eurozone.
1: How? Uh, what is the perspective right now? Are are people? I, I guess who who is uh, not that it's this easy to kind of make it a dialectic, but who thinks the ECB is right in this case, and who thinks the who, who thinks the German court is right in this case?
2: I think the federalists think that the ECB is right, and uh, those who um, are either national na- nationalist or a um, Realists like me, <laughs> we we kind of think that the law and order uh, and, the, and the letter of the uh, treaties is is very important and we need to hold on to that. So it's kind of it's divided. Basically, now you can see from the comments of 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 people, analysts and journalists, the difference that who will who would like to see eurozone going into or Europe going into full federation and others who want to go back to. To a kind uh, of smaller economic areas in the sense that we would have a uh, sovereignty of, of national economies again. So it's a, it's rather it's rather divided into two parts. The, the the Europe at the moment. It's you know it's it's a defining moment in the history of Europe. Actually, I think.
0: Support for this podcast and this message come from Eris X. With ErisX, you can trade spot and regulated futures on cryptocurrencies through a licensed US-based exchange. ErisX believes in fair access for all. Sign up today to take advantage of zero fees and learn more at erisx.com slash consensus. This episode is also sponsored by the Stellar Foundation. The Stellar Network connects your business to the global financial infrastructure. Whether you're looking to power a payment application or issue digital assets like stablecoins or digital dollars, Stellar is easy to learn and fast to implement. Start your journey today at Stellar.org slash Coindesk. Our final sponsor is Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund. In times like these, diversification is key. Consider Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund, ticker symbol GDLC. It's the only publicly traded investment product that offers diversified exposure to large cap digital currencies, all from your brokerage account. For more information, visit grayscale.co slash coindesk. That's G-R-A-Y scale slash coindesk.
1: It's really interesting. You basically have kind of in in that in that uh, that versus scenario that I just set up or kind of forced. You have on the one hand, uh, you know, what you call federalists, and then on the other hand, uh, probably uncomfortable lumping of nationalists and you know realists, as you referred to yourself, uh, maybe economic realists. What is the difference, I guess, for for people who are trying to understand the the difference between kind of a nationalist perspective, which starts perhaps from an ideological base, and a realist economic perspective? Where those two points diverge because I, they may be, I, I would imagine, uncomfortable bedfellows in some contexts. Yeah, yeah,
2: they, we kind of, we kind of are, are.
1: Yeah,
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a water thin line, basically. But I think, uh, yeah, well, we have, we have, what we have in common is the thinking that decision making should be as close as possible to the ordinary people. But us realists don't want to close the borders, basically, that's the, that's the issue. We, we, we be, believe in uh, globalization in, 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 uh, in general form and, um, you know, and, uh, cooperation, uh, a wider cooperation between nations. But, a, uh, but I think we have reached to the point globally also that with the globalization has gone too far so we have to come back a little bit because you need to have people need to have a sense of control of the issues that are within their realm so basically within your own country people need to have that uh faith that they can uh, uh they can change their faith basically so the thing is that if you compare to the us and US, uh, europe uh, the U.S. states have more sovereignty now than uh, the member countries of, of the European Union. And this is something that should not be because we don't even have a federal government, at least yet. So Europe, EU, went to, the European Union went too far. It has, tr- it has tried to grasp the, grasp the power in any, any place it, it can get and transfer it to Brussels and this is created a, a this is basically what's behind the rise of, of the populistic parties, because people don't want people don't want to lose control of their own nations. And that's the biggest mistake that the European leaders have made. <laughs>
1: I think this is a really important point of nuance because uh, especially it gets so amplified in uh, in in kind of the the media model, but there is a big space between sort of a, a a nationalistic country first at all times in all contexts, and a purely globalized we're one big global family no matter where you are, right? There's a huge amount of of meaningful space in between. And it's interesting to see, you know, the US has an interesting spot in the globalization. Conversation obviously because of being the world's reserve currency because of kind of the, the legacy of comparative economic power. But even now, you're starting to see people have a conversation. Whereas you know, five ten years ago, again, it was presented as these kind of very very diametric sides. I mean, Donald Trump won on uh, on with you know MAGA hats, right? Make America Great Again, and that that sort of uh, appeal. Whereas now you have uh, the start of I think an interesting political breakdown a little bit where you have people who have been traditionally left and and kind of liberal or pro pro globalization called maybe neoliberal who are like, huh, maybe we should be able to produce masks, you know, I- here in the country. Maybe, maybe certain types of supply chains are actually, you know, national security concerns. And and the idea of a totally subverted global world order with just just in time uh, supply chains might be, might be going too far in the face of what we might want as some national resilience. And that doesn't mean that they've gone full, you know know, close the borders and and screw China. It's more that there's this, this open middle space that that hasn't perhaps existed there in the political conversation. So I guess I would ask is, you know, is there any of that middle space or has the conversation politically calcified so much that it really is kind of the, the full federalist, you know, uh, EU and euro as it is and expanded integration on the one side and nationalists on the other or, or you know, uh, are, are there more of you basically? That's
2: a very good question. I, I was kind of hoping that when the brexit was done people were or was agreed by the, by the British people uh, that the people would have woken up to this but i it seems like the the battle lines have been hardened you know the the, the guys who want the people who want the Federalist Europe are are more aggressive than any, ever and the, and the middle ground is there it's it's strikingly obvious that there is a middle ground. We need to act together in Europe to, you know, cooperate. But currently the battle lines are so hardly drawn that I don't, I fear that we will be facing a complete collapse of the European um, cooperation before we can build it again. And this is just because the Federalists are pushing back so hard not giving up an an inch and that's a very very dangerous strategy because if you look at the history of of humanity you know sovereign government sovereign countries have always defeated these kind of multinational things at the end so it's just something that i i would really not like to see that the whole european union will fall apart but the, 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 for example, leaders of, of French and Germany are now pushing so hard for the, uh, for the fiscal transfers that I fear that w- when there is this pact going against them with basically uh, Sweden and the Denmark and, and, and the Netherlands, and, it may, and the, they are promising something to the Italians and Spaniards that I don't think many of the northern countries want to keep. And that is where you create a serious rift and a, uh, the likelihood of complete breakdown of, of relations. And when that has happened in Europe, bad things have followed that we know. So this is, it's, it's not lucky looking good at the moment for Europe because we don't recognize, recognize the, the middle space that is definitely there.
1: So this gets to a, a, something that I've seen you say numerous times, both in, in your your own tweets, but then kind of responding to others, which is this idea of dismantling the euro to save Europe. What does that mean?
2: It means that we, we agree uh, in, in, a, in a common fashion that the euro was a failure, and we just decide in a secret cabinet meetings that we dismantle it. We just, you know, there's all these are these... Target two imbalances, which is basically tracks the um, uh, the, the transfer of funds from from one, one Eurozone to another. We have this ECB has bought a lot of these sovereign bonds, and and we have this pan-European payment system, which we which we need to have also in the future. So we just agree that we keep all this or handle this. We agree politically how they are handled, and just you know. Let the Euro go, At, at one day, we, all the countries, we announced that now we are in, uh, uh, in our own currencies and we have capital controls in the, in the whole Eurozone and, and we, just, we just go back to the national currencies and do it in, uh, in cooperation to save the European Union. But if we don't do that, if some countries like Italy or, or Spain, they live in anger from the Euro, there's a high probability that also exit the EU and then the whole system breaks apart
1: so let's let's game this out a little bit what would it so let's say that this happens what how would this play out economically for different countries which you know the, the version that you're, that you're rooting for, right? The, uh, the, the non-chaotic, non-disorderly, the orderly breakup of the euro, right? The, the dismantle of the euro to save Europe. How would that play out in, in the, the local economies or the, the new national, the newly returned national economies?
2: Well, that would, of course, depend a lot, but there was actually a um, um, proposition from a German economist just published yesterday or today morning about that, that let's, just, let's just let uh, Italy leave and germany pays them for leaving gives a grant just you know that they they can you know manage and there are several scenarios how this could play out in in each country but they there's all there's there has to be some defaults basically on the on the on the most indebted countries and what? Well, <laughs> going country by country is not possible in this in this in- interview but they um, and we don't I haven't analyzed it in the in, uh, sure, sure, sure. in any, but but the it would go fine if we would just you know support each other and and the uh, and we will we will most likely have a banking crisis we just have to go through it so it, it, it will not be easy it will be economically very difficult but it would give us the possibility of a very fast recovery after the crisis. And that's what we are aiming here. And when countries' economies recover, cooperation also recovers. So it would be very important, looking to look in the future, that uh, we get rid of the euro because it would most likely revive. The economies of of well all the all the suffering nations. All, only loser would be probably Germany, but she would be she will would be just fine.
1: Do you think, in some ways, that the ability for European member states to uh, figure out ways to support each other is actually easier outside of the euro context? If this scenario were to come to pass,
2: yes, I'm definitely I'm certain it is because then you know then the people would probably support it more because they just, you know, that, that would be a, um, what's the word I'm lacking the word, but anyway, it would be, um, it would come out of the good, goodwill of the citizens, not because we had to have to do it because otherwise the Euro breaks up. And you know, now, now is this politicians are telling us that we have to do it. We have to do it or the Eurozone breaks up. And that's, That gives a, when people cannot say that I help you because I want to help you, but I, but we are told that you are have to, you're forced to help. That's not nice. That, that is, that doesn't create any goodwill towards the project. So I think if if we would get rid of the Euro, people of Europe would naturally start to cooperate with with each other more openly as we, you know, we live in the same space.
1: Yeah it's interesting right so you keep this you keep this model of open borders where the relationships between people is preserved the easy flow of business between countries is preserved and then all of a sudden you have a crisis in a uh, southern state Italy and German leaders get to make the case to their people that whatever deal they want to cut is uh, the right one the, between those two nations and its designed right? That, that's kind of the mental model instead of this emanating from on high or the feeling of it emanating from on high. And it is the obligation, right, of, uh, of the people of, you know, ex-prosperous country to, to foot the bill for, for some other place.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
1: Well, this gets us to an interesting, an interesting context for the, uh, for the essay that you wrote this morning. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: <laughs> yeah, actually, I, I wrote a you know blog an essay demanding that the Finland will exit the Europe, and the reason for it was that the uh, the France and Germany have now agreed that there should be fiscal transfers in the in Europe, and this is prob- very problematic because um, like I mentioned when when we uh, created the the Eurozone, there was a treatise. Put in place, which made sure that we will not uh, bear the fiscal burdens of other, other countries. And so, Germany and France are proposing something that that is directly breaching this. Moreover, the, it's all also breach of several constitutions, like that in Finland. So we are going. We we have gone to the. Uh, well, the, the situation seems to be such that saving the euro. The European leaders, at least in Germany and France, are willing to sacrifice or go into unlawful, uh, of, uh, um, um, unlawful place, basically, and that is really troubling because you know we the, all the all our countries are based on the on the idea of law and order that we follow the law whatever happens, and now they are willing to throw all our treaties away and constitutions away just to save. A currency so it's just you know it's, it, we, we, it, we have arrived in a place where you know unlawfulness reigns. and I don't think Finland should be in it anymore. And, the th- and another thing is that we have, the euro has hurt us badly. We have a very kind of small or narrow in that, um, export base. Uh, and they, uh, we, we have always relied on the currency to, uh, to depreciate when we have a, uh, you know, when the demand for our exports drop. And it has always helped, and it helped us in the future. And now we don't have it. And then every time we have crisis or, or recession, it takes a, a long time for Finland to recover or the Finnish economy. So the euro has also been hurting us. But now it's just... If if we are suffering in the euro, and now we would need to go to an unlawful place also. So I I don't, that's not worth it. So it's just better to leave.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. There's a there's a there's a bit of a tail wagging the dog thing happening when the desire to preserve uh, a, a, a choice, right, a, a, a euro, a construct, uh, starts to dictate policy. Especially when that the what it dictates is a certain type of crisis time power creep. Um, I mean, we're certainly seeing that. that you know, crisis always create power creep uh, in the political sector. Um, I think in America, you're seeing it most acutely now with the blending. Let's call it of the Fed and the Treasury uh, through you know special purpose vehicles or, or whatever you have, but it's a it's a common story. You know, it's interesting hearing you talk about uh, uh, talking about the 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 euro's deleterious impact on um, on on Finland just in general. Though you know, this is something that people are starting to ask questions about in the U.S. The strength of the dollar, you know, because the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency, you know, we always are going to run trade deficits just to get dollars out into the world. That's kind of the the nature of the beast, but but the cost of that, and this is just built into the system, is that the currency can't really find its natural equilibrium via trade, right? It can't it can't have you know uh, momentary or, or you know few year down cycles where all of a sudden our exports become more uh, more competitive, really, because there's just artificial demand because everything is priced in dollars, and that's that's becoming more and more of an issue the the farther out from the initiation of the the, the dollar led system we get,
2: yeah. A good point. Yeah, that's 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 your problem.
1: Yeah, exactly. Oh no, well. <laughs> um, so listen, I, you know, I I think that there's there's so much to dig into in the euro. I really appreciate you taking the time to look into that. But I do want to ask you about a couple other parts because again, your your uh, your your research is 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 truly global. And so I wanted to touch briefly on China. China, uh, you know, is is kind of a, a a third leg of this conversation, as it relates to how the economic uh, how economic power is balanced around the world coming out of the COVID crisis. You had a really interesting tweet storm at the beginning of, uh, I think it was in January, where you said that China's leveraging and deleveraging has driven the global business cycle. And reading back through a number of your uh, other uh Blog posts on on the site as well. Uh, you've written a lot about how um, how we're kind of experiencing the end of the Chinese miracle and how it really kind of started in the Great Financial Crisis. So I guess I'd love to hear your take on China coming into the COVID crisis uh, and maybe coming out of it as well.
2: Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah, not many people understand, but China has been running this cycle since two thousand nine, basically. So if, if you look at, for example, the um, the Investments in the physical capital in the major industrialized nations, China has accounted for over 50% of them after 2009, and moreover, it has accounted for over 60% of all new money or credit created globally since 2009. So this has been a been China cycle. Before they were usually U.S. cycles, but this has been a China cycle. But the problem is that since 2009, the, the the debt of China has grown about threefold compared to GDP. So it's three times faster than the GDP. And that's something that just cannot last. And, and the thing the, we were talking about the deleveraging and leveraging cycle uh, is that they, China has tried to deleverage to stop the growth of debt a few times, like first time in, in 2015, which led to the mini recession. And, uh, in, in China and globally. And then they started to leverage again. And then end of 2017, they started to deliver, deleverage. And they, uh, all the, all the times China has done this, the global business cycle has followed them up and down, up and down, depending on, on the, on the, are they deleveraging or leveraging? And this, this has been really phenomenal and, and, uh, and, strict correlation since at least 2015 and many people in the us for example are very hard time of, of accepting this but this is what has happened it, it is very clear in the in the indicators uh, but the problem is that when you create a, a lot of debt uh, and and what happened okay let's go back in, a, in 2009 the china chinese government Forced, basically, it can come on, command banks to lend. So it forced banks to start lending massively. And when you force banks to lend, a lot of that will go to unproductive investments. So slowly, the productivity growth of China started to creep down. And in 2012, it went negative. And it has been negative ever since. So China's investing is growing, but its productivity is declining. And this is something you never, ever observe beyond or outside uh, uh, economic crisis or some bigger shocks. So I consider that the Chinese miracle, the very fast growth that started in, in the, in the uh, late 1970s actually ended in 2012. And since then, they have been on, on borrowed time. And the thing is, when these massive uh, debt uh, bonanzas, which China is now driving, when they come to an end, there is a collapse. This is there is no exception. It always collapses, and the, and the Chinese uh, uh, credit bonanza is the biggest uh, the world history knows. So we are definitely heading to a the end of the current Chinese miracle, at least. And what happens after? Then it gets really interesting because the um, the uh, the um, kind of the the Chinese Communist Party has its mandate basically dictating that they will uh, grow the economy and jobs. And when those are taken away, what happens? Will there be a revolution? There's one Finnish researcher, uh, China researcher, who has said that China has a uh, revolution in about every 70 years. And just last year, China had the 70th uh, anniversary of uh, establishing the, the co- communist China. So it would be time, according to that logic, to have some some uh, bigger uh, you know shuffling of of the political scape of of uh, of China. But we have to see. But the economic road is ending, that's for sure. And the coronavirus just you know it was just the um, the thing that broke the camels back or something like that, because it, it they will de- deliver a massive economic hit. But the road that China is has been has already is, is the road has been such that it will end, end to a collapse regardless of the shock that will initiate it.
1: It's interesting. This is, I mean, this is a point that you've kind of been making more broadly too about the the world economy, which you see is very fragile. Uh, you wrote a piece on March seventeenth called "Financial Markets Are Becoming Unhinged," and you said, as we have argued repeatedly, the crisis most likely started on the sixteenth of September, twenty nineteen, within the repo markets. The coronavirus was only the trigger and now a convenient excuse for emerging an unfortunately very real economic calamity. Uh, I guess what what was the thesis of that article and just it's kind of your, your thesis writ large, and how do you see that playing out now. Do you think that central banks are going to be able to kind of prop this up uh, one more time, or are we really at the end of a super cycle?
2: I think we're end of the super cycle. The thing is that what what broke down in in sixteenth of September was this kind of massive leverage cycle leverage cycle in the in the global financial order. So for several reasons, uh, it's just uh, at that date. The, the big banks were not willing to lend to the repo market anymore because, well, there were there were a lot of leveraged financial institutions like hedge funds in the repo market nowadays. And the Fed had to st- step in because if there, if there would be no lending on the hedge funds, highly leveraged hedge funds, they would start to go under and it would create a financial panic. So that's why we considered that the, the financial crash actually started already then. But of course, what the Fed did is stepped in and started to buy the U.S. Treasury, treasury bills and started to provide massive amounts of liquidity in the, the financial system again. And then in in mid-March, uh, the U.S. financial markets were basically in a, in a state of collapse. So and the Fed stepped in and started to Prop up every single major corner of the capital market. Our our um, our um, U.S. partner actually uh, uh, said said that 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 was the end of the free American capital markets. And but the thing is that this is they can they can face, Fed can basically save the financial markets almost from any fate except the one that hits the real economy with which the coronavirus has now done. So you cannot cannot print demand, or you can try to print the demand by financing the government, but that will always lead to the destruction of the value of money eventually. So I think the Fed is trapped. All central banks are trapped. This is the hit in the real economy they cannot fix. They will desperately try to keep the financial markets afloat, but the thing is that financial markets cannot indefinitely go the, uh, um, uh, detach from the real economy because we're in the same economy. So at some point, the financial markets need to correct on the level where the real economy is going, and that implies a crash.
1: What are you watching going forward? What are the, what are the key signals that you're looking out for?
2: Chunk bonds, basically. And, and all the real economy the indicators, based to, to, you know, all, the, all the basic stuff like um, joblessness uh, uh, and all leading indicators and stuff like that. But I would watch the junk bond yields and spreads very co- closely because there you can see when the financial markets are starting to become unhinged again.
1: Thomas, this is such a, a great conversation. Uh, I, I could pick your brain for uh, much longer, but I really appreciate you sharing your insight. Thanks for being here today.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: The piece of the conversation that I keep reflecting on is this idea of a middle space between the European Union as it is conceived now and the euro as it is conceived now must be preserved at all costs, and this rising tide of nationalism on the other side. There's a huge middle space, and this is reflective, I think, of U.S. politics as well. There's a huge space between democratic socialism and rabid kind of right ideology on the other side, where people can debate and disagree, but have a kind of rational conversation about trade-offs and economics and what is right, not only in the short term, but in the long term, divorced from strict ideology. That space is the hardest to claim right now for a number of reasons. We're at the end of cycles where they reward and incentivize highly reactionary attitudes. It's also hard to claim that middle ground because it doesn't make for good headlines. It doesn't work within the media model, which, if anything, says that's why we need a new media model. It's something I think about all the time. I'm sure we're going to be talking about it more. And for my part, I appreciate you guys journeying with me on this alternative media path where we get to hear from a lot of different perspectives, some that you guys probably agree with and some that you guys probably don't. So I appreciate you. I appreciate you listening. Until tomorrow, be safe and take care of each other.
3: Peace. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant.